quick say. Good morning. How is everybody? Good, good. Let's, um, let me pray before we get started. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for sending your son. Jesus, we thank you for coming down to earth, living among us, dying for us. And uh, this morning as we dive into your word and we look at your story, that you would open our hearts and our minds to receive from you this morning. And we say these things in your name, in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh my gosh. So as John said, my name is Josh. I'm the associate pastor here. Um, you'll notice uh, my wife is, is out. Uh, she's sick. The kids are all sick. And she's doing all that natural medicine voodoo stuff at home, and, uh, and it's not working for them. I haven't touched the stuff, and I'm here this morning. But I'm nervous because I always know that if I crack a joke, my wife is there to laugh. So, see, she would have laughed. She would have laughed. But yeah, my family's at home. But I want to tell you a story about family. Family's interesting. Uh, Almost eight years ago, my firstborn son was born. Uh, it was February 4th. And I remember in preparation for this whole thing, I was super excited. I had a boy. He was coming. It was going to be awesome. And uh, we get to the hospital. We're super excited. It was out at Hogue, so we had this view of Newport Beach outside of the maternity windows. Honestly, phenomenal. And everything that I thought was going to happen in childbirth did not happen. And it was because all of my notion of childbirth was based on lies from Hollywood. You know, they'll, they'll show the wife, like, sure, somebody screams or something like that. But they basically hand the mom a six-month-old <laughs> who's smiling and interacting and laughing. It's more like Alien, where this mess of a human comes out. And then the nurse goes, here, cut this. Okay, all right, what's happening? And then they throw him on the mom. And then they hand Joshua to me. And I'm looking at him and thinking, what is this? <laughs> the head is shaped like a cone. The eyes aren't even opening. He's screaming at me for something that I clearly can't give him. And then he goes back on mom. And it was so weird for me. I was expecting something more like Hollywood where they put him in my arms and I immediately fell in love with my boy, not some alien-looking slimy thing. <laughs> and it sent me into a funk. That next week, of course, because babies are like boot camp. You just show up and somebody screams at your face. <laughs> and we had no idea what to do. Did you feed him? Of course I fed him. Did you, does he have... A messy diaper? No, we changed that already. Is he gas? What's happening? You just don't know. And he would scream and cry, and we got no sleep. And like any good parent, you still look at your wife and go, what the heck were we thinking? Why did we do this? And we weren't, and you know what it's like when you don't get sleep. You go crazy. It was so bad. A week after Joshua was born, my mom died. And I went into a depression. It was so bad, I Googled postpartum depression for dads. I had to figure out what was going on. It was so bad that when I would walk into the room, I didn't even want to look at Joshua. Because I associated it all together. 
And I remember one night my wife said to me, I'm watching your friends do more of a dash of sin than you are. Man, it cut me. I felt so empty and void. I went into the bathroom, I closed the doors, and I just sat down and I cried my eyes out. And I said, Lord, make me love like him. And if any of you watch Joshua right now, he's a clone. <laughs> my goodness. For all the good and the bad, he's completely me, just minus 30. It's incredible. I made you some blonde hair. But that boy, as soon as I prayed and decided I am going to do the things that a father is supposed to do, my heart changed. But I know that everybody in this room, at some point in your lives, you have felt completely depleted of love. We've all had hardships in our lives. Every one of us. Whether it's loss of family, maybe it was a breakup in high school or college, divorce, loss of a loved one. Maybe you were abused. Maybe these bad things happened during the holidays and every time a tree goes up, you're reminded of that emptiness. But one of the key messages of Christmas is that God's love came down and he offers his love to you and me. And what I quickly learned with Joshua was this. As soon as I changed from looking for my own satisfaction to satisfying him, all of a sudden I found myself filled with love. And today we're going to look at that. We're going to look at what love means. We're going to look at how to find ourselves filled with the love of God this Christmas. So let's start by opening our Bibles to Luke chapter 2. We're going to read the greatest love story of all time, and that is the birth of Jesus. And in verse 1, it begins, In those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. And she wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And then suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. 
But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus. And the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. Now this story is dripping with love. Love is throughout every element of this story. And as we read it at a first glance, we might not see the love in all of the different elements. And I think that might have to do with our culture, with the way we use the word love. I mean, we would admit it, right? We love to use the word love. We use it for everything, whether it's movies, TV, pets, cars, art, sports, rams. I expected more chargers. We are a very un-LA supported <laughs> congregation. Wow. I'm okay, I have a confession, just really quickly. I'm actually rooting for the Patriots. And let me let me Let me explain why. I just want to see if Tom Brady can. He's 41, right? Can he break more records? Anyway, whatever. That's beside the point. Sports. We say we love food. How many love tacos? Yep, that's right. I made this killer stuffing. I'm going to brag. I made this killer stuffing the other night. Aurora hates stuffing. Absolutely hates it. But she tried it because I made it. And she asked me, why is this so good? And why do I want more? Bacon. Uh, don't use butter, saute the onions and bacon and pour all that off. Oh, goodness. We love to use the word love for all kinds of things. But I think that has twisted to a degree the way we think about love. See, what we've done is we've actually taken the word love and used it as a substitute for the word like. We don't really love movies, right? We like movies. We don't really love, well, you might love food. We have ministry time afterwards. <laughs> but we like cars. We like TV. But because we use love as a substitute for the word like, it confuses the way we think about love. Because when I say I like something, what I'm actually saying is that thing brings me pleasure. Believe me, it's okay to take pleasure from food. It's okay to like these things. But we start to confuse what love is when we think it's about our own satisfaction. But our culture does this. It's so bad that we even have confused this with Jesus. I had a lot of fun this uh, November. There were a whole bunch of weddings. People were getting married all over the place. And I had the joy of doing my brother's wedding. I was the officiant. Which, by the way, if you have siblings that are pastors, it might not be best to have them do your wedding. Because the last thing you want is to get heckled by the preacher. <laughs> but as a brother, I had to do it. But I'm watching these weddings, and we're talking about love, and everybody is so romanticized. And when I look at our culture and the way we talk about love in regards to people, we actually say the same thing. I love you. 
And if we're going to be honest, we say that when we're feeling something about that person. Not that the feelings are wrong, but we never look at somebody out of anger and say, oh, I love you. <laughs> but it would be a much greater story if out of anger you looked at a friend or your spouse and said, I love you. Your legs off me. I love you. <laughs> In fact, I'm convinced that this romanticism between uh, men and women is probably one of the big reasons that divorce is so frequent in America because we look for that emotional satisfaction. And anyone who's been married longer than a day knows that emotional satisfaction can come and go pretty quickly. Right? The romantic era has changed the way we look at love. Love and feelings and passion became central and really individual feeling was elevated. And this began the move, began the move towards self-centered feelings. And our love for a person is based on how I feel about them. In the Greek, this kind of work is called eros. You guys love Greek, right? No, no, no. You like Greek. You're not listening. <laughs> Greek food? Okay. All right. Good enough. It's called eros. This is that kind of love that seeks to satisfy its own passions, its own desires. Now, of course, we have passions and we have desires, and that's okay. We're, I believe that God has given some of those things. But this kind of love, eros, existed in the Greek, and it's that self-satisfying type of love. Guess how many times that occurs in the New Testament? Zero. Not once does that Greek word for love Weird, isn't it? It was very common in Greek literature and culture, but not in our Bibles. Now, why does this matter? Well, the reason it matters is because maybe the culture back then had confusion about love just like we do. If you want to see our confusion, just look at any chick flick or romantic comedy. Right? How many times have we seen feelings change and people get hurt because a couple's engaged, but then one of them, they're they get a flat tire, so then they have to go to this tow truck driver who just happens to be masculine and cute. And then all of a sudden, they fall in love and turn on the other person. Passion. Maybe the culture back then struggled with the same thing. You see, in the Bible, we see a much different kind of love. We're going to look at that love right now. Go ahead and take out your Bibles again and turn to 1 Corinthians 13. You can't have a message on love without looking at 1 Corinthians 13. When John asked me to preach on love this morning, I thought, uh, to my, for the record, he didn't ask me this morning. <laughs> but when John asked me to speak on love, I thought to myself, oh my gosh, how am I going to do this? Because love is such a big deal in the Bible. Love really is the theme, the theme of the Bible. Everything God does, he does out of his love. He created everything here out of his love for us. He created us out of his love. Even his judgment is out of his love. His mercy flows from his love. Everything flows from God's love. That's why John says, God is love. If somebody were to ask me to summarize the Bible in three words, it would certainly be that one. God is love. It is such a big theme in the Bible. 
And if we're going to understand that, if we're going to understand God, we have to understand what that love looks like. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. Paul says, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. Listen to this. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. And this is a great ending to that. Love never fails. When we look at 1 Corinthians 13, we've heard these attributes before. But what's most important for us this morning is to know that there is not one ounce of self in any of those qualities. When I'm selfish, I'm not patient. When I'm selfish, I'm not kind. People can irritate us. Family can irritate us. Friends, traffic, whatever it is. It's rising above that for the benefit of others and when I am loving. There's no hint of self here. And there's another thing that's really interesting. There's almost no hint of feeling evil. It's really built on action toward others, not on feeling for myself. That's biblical love. The word that Paul uses and the word that occurs the most in the New Testament is agape. It's well over 85% of the time used in the New Testament. And agape is a selfless, giving love that is not based on merit. Right? So we can think about, I love that person because that person has earned my affection. But that's not agape. Agape is completely giving. It is not concerned with merit or with reciprocity. Rather, it is all about giving. This is what Jesus talks about. And this is what Paul talks about. Now remember, we talked about eros. How many times does eros occur in the New Testament? Zero. Guess how many times agape is found in the Greek word? Once. Isn't that fascinating? Once. It almost doesn't exist. The Greeks had this word. The Roman culture had this word. But they didn't use this word. When Paul and Jesus are talking about love and they use the word agape, they are speaking into a world that is devoid of true Christ-like love. And the message of Christmas is all about that. Speaking into a world and into a culture that is in desperate need of real agape love. If I were to summarize biblical love, it would be this. Biblical love is putting others' needs before your own. It's that simple. Super hard to do but really that simple to understand. So now what I want us to do is go back to Luke 2. Let's take this understanding of biblical love, that love is putting others' needs before our own, and I think if we do that, we'll be able to see the different elements of love in that story. Let's start with this. Let's start with Joseph. Joseph and Mary were engaged. 
And all of a sudden, Mary becomes pregnant without Joseph's intervention. You can imagine how Joseph would have felt. You can imagine what he would have thought. And back then, marriage was much more contractual than it is now. Joseph had every right to end the contract and to say, you know what, Mary, you violated your end of the deal, so the deal is off. And to do this, he would have had to embarrass her publicly before the courts. But instead, Joseph decided to stay with Mary. He chose to believe God and to put his reputation aside for her benefit. And for Jesus' benefit. He could have let it go, but he didn't. He trusted God and he obeyed God. Joseph chose to sacrifice his reputation for the needs of someone else. Of course, when we look at the story, we have to understand the fact. God the Father, he gave his son. I started the story earlier, right, about me going through that depression and feeling empty and devoid of love and not being able to even look at Joshua. Now, that boy, oh my gosh, he is like the center of my life. It's amazing how much I think about him, how much I love him. I could not for one second even think about giving him up for anybody in this room. And that's something a parent understands. But God looked at us. God saw my needs. He saw your needs. He saw that we were estranged from him. He saw that we were on a path to self-destruction. He knew that we couldn't keep the law, that we couldn't keep relationship with him, and he had to do something. So looking at our needs, he decided to put us first, and with agape love, he sacrificed his son for you and me. When we look at the story in Luke 2, we see Jesus, a baby. And we talk about how gross babies are. Sidebar. Understood why baby, people think babies are so cute. They ooze and drip out of everything. <laughs> it's a nightmare. When we had our babies, I could not believe how much you know what they could produce and how many times they had to change your diapers. How are you doing this? It was a disgusting affair. The eternal word of God, fully God in all of his glory, decided to leave his glory behind and become a disgusting, filthy, oozing baby. God, who was deserving of all praise and all worship, left his realm of glory for you and me and decided to put on a body and walk through this life get sore feet walking through the desert, become thirsty, become rejected by people. He chose to do that for you and me, the Son, Jesus, to sacrifice his glory. Jesus said it himself, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. And he did it for you and me. That's the love of God. That's agape. That is the love of Christ. 
So now, we have to ask ourselves, how do we become filled with love at Christmas time? I know we've been empty. And I know for some people in this room, Christmas can bring up some painful memories. And you might not like the holidays. But let me give us some practical tips on how we can apply and find this love at Christmas time. I think the first thing that every one of us should do is to follow the example of the shepherds, and that is to receive the gift of God, the ultimate demonstration of his love, which is Jesus. See, the shepherd story is pretty cool, right? The shepherds didn't sacrifice. They actually got to receive the gift. So when the angels show up, they tell the shepherds, hey, go check this thing out in Bethlehem. It's really cool. The Messiah's born. And they say, no kidding. All right, let's go check this out. And they do. And they find everything exactly the way it was supposed to. They just received the message. They received who Jesus was. And then they went away glorifying and praising God for everything that he had done. Christmas is about receiving Jesus. It's about receiving Jesus. Our culture tells us it's about family. It's not. Family's cool. Don't get me wrong. You can watch um, A Christmas Carol, and uh, they talk about Christmas generosity. It's exemplified in food and all of this feasting. It's not. It's about Jesus, and it's about receiving him into our lives. I would ask that everybody receive him today. And for those of us who have received him, we know that there are times where we kind of wander away or we feel empty and we're not as close to Jesus. We take the time this week to receive him. One of the things that I would definitely recommend is to do what the shepherds did and glorify God for all of the cool things and all of the good things that he's given to us in our lives. Okay? Just write it down. Start praising him. Don't be a Scrooge. Look for the good things. We live in America. There's food everywhere here. I don't have to worry about that. I don't have to worry about so many things just by being here. All of us are in a room right now with a heater on. Just think about that. God has given you and me so many good things that when we write them down and glorify him, and say, God, you have done these great things for me, it puts us in a position to receive his love within our hearts. The other thing that I would recommend is to give to people who are in need. Give to people who are in need. As we saw, agape love has nothing to do with my feelings. It has everything to do with me giving towards other people, putting their needs before my own. Christmas is a wonderful time. And when you have young kids, grandparents are the worst. They're absolutely the worst. And the reason they're the worst is for lots of different reasons, but one of which I can't stand is to get your kids do this. Give them toys that make noise without an off-light. What sociopath marketer did that? 